Jealous believe that on the face of this earth, and this is the roughest of estimates, that there are seven quintillion, five hundred quadrillion grains of sand. I've never written a number with 22 zeros before. I cannot even get my head around the size of that number. And yet, Scripture teaches us that our loving God has made every single one of these for all of us. He created the land for us to walk on, to live on. I'm going to go to a smaller number. Uh, um, astronomers estimate, and this is just an estimate, because we're not even sure we know the edge of the universe yet. They estimate that we have 10 billion trillion stars out there, and they always say in the observable universe. That's kind of a way to hedge their bet, because as they go further and further out, they're discovering more and more. Now, that's a smaller number, but I still can't get my head around writing something with 17 zeros to it. I can only imagine what it must have been like for the angels if they had been created at this point, but certainly the rest of God's creation to praise God for this masterwork. And God created all of those for us. He didn't need them. He wanted us to have them. Medical science estimates that within the human body, there are 40 trillion separate cells. Now, that's a number I can work with, right? Not really. Again, 40 trillion. And have you ever stopped to think that God uniquely and purposely created each and every one of those for us? Not for him as much as it is for us. And yet, why does it surprise us that when God does these big, amazing things, why does it surprise us that God does miracles like this? Behold the multitude. Time's far past. Send them away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves bread. They have nothing to eat. Give ye them to eat. Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? How many loaves have you? Five. Two fishes. Bring them to me. Divide the people into companies of 50 that they might be fed. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee for thy bounties. Amen.
when I talk about this amazing miracle, I'm not making reference to the fact that Jesus took five loaves of bread and two small fish. And by the way, I love it that he should look to God the Father and refer to that as bounty. And that he feeds thousands of those. That's, that's a big miracle, but that's not really the big miracle in this lesson. I'm also not talking about the amazing fact that when they got done, they had 12 baskets of leftovers. That they ended up, even after feeding these thousands of people, with far more than what they began. What I'm talking about is the miracle within the miracle. And I don't know that we always stop to notice it, but it has to do with our lesson today. In fact, this miracle is our lesson today, this conversation, where Jesus basically tells his disciples, I want you to feed them. And then we see how they react to that, and then Jesus offers them the answer. Bring it to me. You see... What this lesson is today is the same lesson that we fight. This is the last of the spiritual battles that I get to teach about, is the fact that the followers of Jesus Christ, for some reason, we have been trained to expect so little of our God, not just in our day-to-day -day affairs, but especially as we fight our spiritual battles. It's time we looked at this lesson a little bit differently and come away knowing that our Lord tells us we should expect more. Do you remember this? This is where it all began, the I Quit series. This slog through these lessons on spiritual warfare on a very personal level. And some of these have been very challenging, very trying, if you will. We are right here. That's the second last one. Pastor A gets the final one. He gets to bring this all home. That lesson from Genesis 32 is Jacob wrestling with God. It's maybe the best way to end a series on spiritual warfare because one of the things we talked about at the beginning is our battles aren't always with the devil. Some of them are between us and God. I remember Jonah, that lesson, how angry he was with God and how much God loved Jonah that he would take the time and invest so much in him. I don't know if you've observed this, but one of my discoveries through this, and this has been a series that while I put all the lessons together and discuss it with Pastor A. I had no idea where this was going to go. One of the observations I have made is that of all of the spiritual battles, the majority of them seem to be within us. We fight with ourselves. And I don't know if you can remember the very first lesson that started us off in this, and I think it's good that I got the opportunity to have this lesson to help us, if you will, come full circle and also to talk about our expectations of God. But in these battles, the reason why we struggle so much is because we often go to the wrong place for our help. We often go to the wrong place for the weapons to fight these battles. We go to the wrong place to find the strategy. But in the end, if we go to the right place, as this lesson teaches us, if we expect from our God everything he promises of us, then this is how every battle should end. Victory. Is victory the word you would use to define your experience? Perhaps not victory, but a different word would better describe your appearance. If left to ourselves, our identity is treacherous. And the words which define who we are can sound so perilous. Words like religious, stingy, angry or anxious, self-reliant, lazy, haphazard or pretentious. What would give us the guts or the courage to define our identity in a word like victory? When if we look to ourselves, the best word might be filthy. In the beginning was the word. 
And the Bible says the Word dwelt among us. God's Word took the form of humanity and lived with us. The Word is Jesus, holy man, holy divine, fully human, completely God. He lived a life as a servant among us, died a death as a sinner that wasn't glorious, raised to life as a king so you and I could be victorious victorious. His history becomes our history. A righteousness that's not of ourselves, but caught up in mystery. Now we have a new word for our identity. And the word that describes those in him, you and me. That word is victory. Did each lesson end with you thinking this way? Victory? You see, every spiritual battle begins and ends at the foot of the cross, or at least it should. The problem is, is that while we wrestle with God and we wrestle with all the evil forces, our biggest opponent is ourselves. Where do we go for the help that we need to win? I'll be the first to admit I have far too often gone to my own strength, to my own thinking, and to my own planning. Thank God for all of these lessons that is not only the reminder but the impetus to go back to Jesus for victory. All right, let's get into the lesson so you can understand and see where that comes from. I don't know if you knew this about this miracle, but this is the only miracle of all of the ones recorded in the Gospels that is actually recorded by all four Gospels. So what? Well, that tells us because of the varying authors and the varying recipients of those letters, this is a lesson that Jesus wanted to be universally taught and understood. It also provides for us an amazing amount of details, including the context that leads up to this lesson. We find ourselves late in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and I've listed off some of the more momentous things. By now, he had been rejected a second time in his own hometown of Nazareth. It's a trend that was continuing, especially into the, especially into the third year of his ministry. What he does is he makes Capernaum his base of operation, and that's where our lesson begins today. The religious leaders so much hated what Jesus was teaching, what he was doing, that by now, because of other circumstances, John the Baptist had been put to death. And the disciples had just returned from what I like to put as their vicar year. He sent them out two by two to share the message of Messiah through the towns and villages, primarily in this area, and they had just returned. They had experienced both the mountaintop moments as well as the valleys. And as they discussed these things, Jesus came to the conclusion, we need some time away. Because day after day, even though the religious leaders hated him, the people flocked to him. And this miracle is no exception. They get into a boat, and they head to the east, and they're headed to Bethsaida. And at the same time as they leave, the people of Capernaum recognize that he's headed in that direction. And so they go by foot along the shore. And along the way, they tell people where they're going and what they're doing, so much so that when they arrive at Bethsaida, there are thousands of people waiting for Jesus. He gets out of the boat, and as our good Lord always does, his heart goes out to these people, so he spends the whole day teaching and healing. Many of them had brought sick with them, and he continued to show the mercy of God by taking care of their physical ailments to open the door to a conversation about their spiritual ailments. Well, there's a problem, and this is the context verse that leads right into our lesson. Nobody had really planned for this. Thousands of people, most who hadn't eaten for most of the day, how are they going to feed them? And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this is striking. The disciples recognize the problem, and this is what typically happens with sinners when they face a spiritual battle. We just want it to go away. 
they go to Jesus, and if you do the language work, they literally order Jesus. You send them away. This is too big of a problem. We cannot handle this. We've seen throughout this series that again and again, that's how sinners often want to deal with the battle. We ignore it. We avoid it. We just want it to go away. And we don't stop long enough to consider, you know what, maybe God is working an amazing miracle in this challenge itself. Maybe what we need to do is take a step back and not see things as a problem, but as an opportunity where God chooses to work in our lives. That's what he's doing with the disciples because his response is amazing. At first it seems like Jesus doesn't want to deal with it either. You guys take care of this. You feed them. You might think, well, why would he do that? He's drawing up the battle lines. He's putting this back in their laps going, how are you as the followers of Messiah going to deal with this challenge, with this opportunity? And there's some strange things here, and I love the fact that it is recorded in all the Gospels because it presents a lot of things that if you just read from one or if you quickly go through it, you're going to miss. Well, there's something here specifically that John tells us. There's all these thousands of people. All the disciples are getting worked up about it. And Jesus turns to one of them, Philip. Okay, Philip, what's your solution? I could never quite make sense of that. Why pick on Philip? He's had other interaction with Philip. But why this man, this time, in this place? There's something that, despite the fact that I've taught on this miracle, oh, I don't know how many times, I finally noticed it. That they landed in Bethsaida, the hometown of Philip and Andrew and Peter. That while they weren't specifically host to this event, they apparently did feel some sense of responsibility. Or Jesus kind of lays that on them to see what solution they would come up with this challenge. So he directly talks to Philip. And isn't it interesting that of these three men, it is Andrew who comes up with this, well, here's a guy with five loaves, two fish. Maybe he felt some level of responsibility. Not that Peter's out of the picture of the others. This is all we have. Maybe we could go and buy more. But it's Philip who basically says, you know what, we just don't have enough money to make this happen. He turns to Philip and Andrew's part of this as well because it's the Bethsaida disciples that should have recognized there is no human solution to this challenge. Does that sound familiar? Any spiritual battle that we fight, how much time and energy have we wasted thinking that we had the right answer, the right battle plan, and nowhere in the process of preparing for that war did we stop and go, Jesus, what would you have us do? And maybe you don't struggle with that as much as I do, but i got to be honest. This is my work, and so I do it all day long, and guess what the devil tempts me to do? When I'm doing this personally, it's not an automatic for me to go, oh yeah, I should practice what I preach, because after all, I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd. I should have this, right? I should be able to do this. But even those closest, even the first disciples, John tells us exactly why Jesus did this. He chose those people specifically, Philip specifically, because they were in the perfect place to answer. I, I don't have an answer, but you do, Jesus. You always do, Jesus. 
what we need to train ourselves to do, to encourage one another to do, that as we fight these battles in this life, as we fight these spiritual challenges, that we are side by side reminding each other that you're not strong enough to win. There is no victory in a human solution. But there is a way for this battle to serve God and to serve you. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. Now I know he means the loaves and the fish, but how applicable is this to every life situation? Bring it here to me. Remember, he's the one who created everything, along with the Father and the Spirit. Remember, he's the one that God the Father said, we need one champion, we need one victor. It's you, son. So why on earth wouldn't we have it as our first line of defense? I got a problem. I got a struggle. Let's take it to Jesus. Now, I have to be very careful here because the rest of this lesson applies this more specifically to our daily lives. And I want to make sure you understand what I'm not saying. This is not what I'm preaching. If you give God a little bit, he'll give you a lot back. That's what's known today in many churches as the prosperity gospel. You know, you give, you get. That's not what this lesson is about. In fact, the prosperity gospel is a false teaching that didn't begin in the church. It's been part of humanistic thinking for thousands of years. What goes around comes around. Oh, no, it doesn't. Because if it did, we'd all be burning in hell. And that's not God's plan. And that's certainly not God's grace. I want you to understand the bounties of God and what he wants to do in our lives with every spiritual battle from the perspective of the foot of the cross. You and I stand here only because of the grace of God. You and I stand here knowing that we have an eternal future only because God has chosen to love us. There is nothing that we can give to God to get any kind of reward. There's no payback on God offering up his son to be the payment for all of our sins. And while that should be the main focus of every lesson that we talk about here, that is not the only focus. Imagine a God who loves to do this for his children and then teaching us that's the only thing you should expect is that this will pay off in eternity. That also is a false teaching because the Bible is filled with passages of God saying, I am your parent. And as a loving parent, I want you to enjoy every gift that I give you. And as a parent, where do we receive our greatest joy? Not in getting the gifts from the children as nice as they are, but in watching the joy on their face when they receive a gift of our love. That is the relationship, and that is the outcome for God in these spiritual battles. He lets them come so that we learn to go to him. And in the process, he says, now that we've got this right, now that you're trusting me, I want to give you some pretty big things. I want you to expect more of me, your God. How do I get there? Well, let's start at the beginning. God created for man a perfect world. But then God turned around and gave it to man. This is yours. Take care of it. Oversee it. Protect it. This is a gift I have created for you. Now, we all know what the problem is. 
We all know what sin has done to that beautiful design, but what I need you to understand is that from the very beginning, the very first temptation, what the devil used against Eve's mind and what the devil used against Adam's heart was to expect far too little of God, as if he would create you and all of this and then hold something back. He's been singing that same lie to each one of us for all of our lives. That's not who God is. And that's not the relationship he wants to have with us. But like a loving parent, he wants us to understand how this relationship is meant to work. He gives us the very first gift, faith. And with that gift, he invests in us the ability to trust him that he is a loving parent, that he does know what is best, and that he's got the power to do what needs to be done. And with that trust, he wants boldness and confidence to be other blessings. Just like you want your children, that if they have a problem, to come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I need your help. And most of all, with these gifts, God gives to us the blessing of humility. I am the child, you are the parent. I am asking because I know you love me, not because you know I love you. Now, how does that play out in the scripture? How should that play out in our lives? Well, this is one of the lessons we had, and that's why I included just the end of verse 30. I know we all know this passage, how will not God graciously give us all good things, but have you ever stopped to look at the context? Those he justified, a done deal, Jesus paid for all of our sins. Paul goes on to say he also glorified. See, normally, in the way I grew up, whether I was taught this or just thought this, that means heaven to me. But that's not what Paul is saying. This is in a verb tense that tells us our glorification is a completed act. Right here, right now. So how on earth... Can this holy God glorify us? By us expecting more from him, by us understanding that as a loving parent, he is just waiting to give us his blessings. As long as we have the proper attitude and relationship, because if we're asking with the wrong motives, as James reminded us, God's not going to give us something that's going to harm us. I can't pray for a million dollars and God will give it to me if it's going to, in the end, harm my faith. But if I properly understand how to use his gifts, if I ask with a heart that trusts him as a loving father, if my plan is to use what he gives to glorify him and serve you, why wouldn't God want to give that to us? What stands in the way of that blessing is when we don't go to him. Paul also said this, Now, I've added just a little bit so you can understand this, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Again, he's writing from uh, house arrest, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To be filled, the word means to fill us all the way up to the top. And then he goes on to describe what that means. And he uses words that I'm not sure we can actually put into our language. This hyperperosis, God is exceedingly abundant. He's more than more. You see, so often we expect so little of God. Just get me through the day. Just get me past this illness. Just help me pay these bills. Just help me with this relationship. And while God wants to do all that, he's got to be up in heaven going, why are you asking for so little? 
because I've got so much to give you. I've got exceeding abundance. Sometimes the challenge, sometimes the battle is actually being fought right here in our hearts because we're thinking too little of God. So God says, whatever it is, bring it to me. I want to. I love to. I cannot wait to give you the victory that I've designed for you. Now, we've talked a lot about many great believers throughout the scriptures and the fatal flaw in every one of these spiritual battles. The thing that brought them to that moment where they said, I give up, I want to quit, is when they look to themselves, to their own strength, to their own reasoning, to their own plans, every single one of them, from Moses to David to Jonah, all of these greats showed us that they weren't so great when they forgot to go to God and expect God to offer the solution, to offer the victory. Why not? Why shouldn't we be able to go to a loving father who gave his son, who has the power to do this? More than we could ever ask or imagine. What if today, what if this week, you took as your own personal assignment to ask for God something so big that you knew only God could do it? That what you asked of him was so far beyond you and your ability and your wherewithal that you, to the depths of your heart, understood what I am asking, God, I know that only you can do. And I know you can do. Not because of this. Not because of this. Not because of this. And certainly not because of this. But because of this. Every spiritual battle begins and ends here. And because it does, expect more. brief, quiet interaction, a few short moments in the day of perfect clarity stored deep within, a point of sudden and flashing awareness that there is more, so much more than anyone has ever experienced in this life. And in that place, we begin to dream. The world stands with hands clasped over mouths, hushing our simple disbelief, waiting for words and plans to be brought back from this disposition and woven into time. These dreams, our deepest hopes and aspirations, are not mere illusions or fantasies, but avenues and roadmaps to the place God is calling us wonder and awe, a brilliant landscape, a million colors, and we're the ones who get to see it. 
We are not limited by religion, society, or expectations because we are the dreamers given a chance to see beyond life and death into the very power of resurrection itself. Wake up, O sleeper, raise up from the dead, and Christ will shine all the more. Behind every failure is Jesus, screaming at the top of his love-filled lungs, that even if the whole world stands against you, you've got this, and I've got you.